Welcome to Business Books and Company. This month, we read Founders at Work by Jessica Livingston, a partner at Y Combinator. Jessica interviews many startup founders throughout the early OOs and gives us the stories of how they found their success and led ultimately to acquisitions, shutting down the company, or blowing up big. Before we get into the book, though, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. My name is Molson Hart. I'm the CEO and founder of a toy company named Biohart and a litigation financing firm named Edison. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So, David Molson, thinking about founders at work, did you find it a little bit discombobulated reading so many different stories? Was there a unifying theme that you found throughout the book or was it just all over the place for you? So I think there were a couple of themes that came across throughout, but I agree that it was not a particularly coherent overall message, but I honestly really enjoyed it nonetheless. I think that hearing a lot of different experiences from different founders was frankly pretty interesting. I think that the the themes that we did see are you know kind of classic tropes that we've seen across a lot of the other books that we've read, so you know grit being able to continue to be open-minded to change, uh, being willing to try something new, really focusing on the customer and getting a product that actually solves a problem. There were a lot of the sort of themes we've heard from a lot of the other books that we've seen, but there was something about reading those over and over again that did kind of pound them into my head a little bit. And I, th- I thought a lot there were a lot of interesting tidbits from almost every one of the, the chapters that I read. For me, it was cool to see how many different ways there were to succeed. And I, I felt that it was a little bit discombobulated, but I think that's just the nature of the book. I mean, everyone has a different path to success or in some cases, a different path to failure. It was also like pretty hard for me to extricate the stories from my own experiences. I don't know, having founded two companies, those had similar journeys. Yeah, like David said, grit was huge. Another unifying theme, if there was one, was kind of you just... The future is unknown. None of these founders, whether they failed or succeeded, they just had no idea what was coming next and whatever did come next surprised them. So sometimes I guess, I guess you could say that founding a company is just, it's kind of like jumping into the unknown. It's not so much about having a plan. So there's 33 interviews across founders at work. And I would say from my own perspective, they were quite uneven. So there were some interviews that you really felt like you were getting a lot of insight out of. And there were some interviews that really were almost a waste of time to read. Were there a couple interviews that stood out to either of you as particularly insightful? So I thought the Waz interview was really great. I've read a lot of interviews with him before, but I even learned some things from it that I hadn't before about the history of the Apple founding. I, for instance, really did think it was founded in a garage. So finding out that that wasn't the case is, uh, was a little bit of a surprise for me. I'm trying to think if there were others that, that jumped out, especially Molten. Craigslist. Craigslist. The, the founder of Craigslist, that interview just blew my mind. That was just the weirdest story. And, and to date, that is just strikes me as the most bizarre company. I agree it was very weird, but I have to say I didn't get a lot of like insight out of it. What, what yeah, it wasn't sorry, it wasn't insightful. It just really stood out. Well tell everyone what was so strange about it. I mean, first of all, this guy built an amazing business. It, it was such an amazing business. It's like the classic network effects business. It was such an amazing business that like the last 10 years of startups have just been there was like a meme. There was a trope. You you show up on the Craigslist, you pick one of the links, whether it was transportation, which became Uber or, you know, jobs, which became gigs, which became, you know, this company or Indeed or whatever. And you just built your own startup after it based on what was going on in that space within Craigslist. What was weird about it was his attitude for a little while. The company was a nonprofit. He didn't really seem all that interested in growing it. It just it confused me that his that even to the up until the point of writing that interview his it, he said his main job was actually doing customer service on the site and he almost seemed to say that that meant that he was answering customer queries it wasn't like he was observing angry craigslist customers and then like designing a new way to to improve the platform just and then he talked about how if I'm remembering correctly, that he had like a lot of disputes with 
early founders and uh, just all across the board. That was by far the, the weirdest interview in the book and maybe the strangest Silicon Valley story I've ever come across. He really didn't seem to be in it for the money, right? I mean, it almost seemed like he was in it for the social mission. And then he himself, he acknowledged his limitations, bringing in other people to do the management and going back to doing customer service. That is interesting because a lot of the stories in this book are founders that go on to be CEOs of the company for at least a significant amount of time before maybe the company scales to a certain level. Whereas he pretty quickly realized that this is not really for him, right? So he's almost like the odd one out in the book, I would say, as uh, somebody who didn't take on the role of manager almost at all. Is that fair? To my mind, yeah. Yeah, there were definitely a couple of other people that we learned from that weren't ever CEOs. But I think his was definitely the strangest where, it, yeah, to, to Molson's point, he literally said that like his job to this day is customer service. And again, I imagine it is a little bit more of a like product manager who's focused on the customer than it is like true. All he's doing is responding to like, whatever my listing didn't get posted when I wanted it to or whatever queries. But yeah, compared to most of the other people, it was definitely the strangest story. I mean, the the whole history of it was really interesting to hear too. I, I actually hadn't so that he it had literally started as an email list of interesting events. And <laughs> that, you know, just grew into this site where he started to post the things instead. And then he just kept adding new sections as he heard about other new interesting things that were happening. And that the monetization was almost a byproduct of like trying to solve customer problems, actually, which he said that, that literally when they started to make money, it was because there were so many bogus or like bad listings on the New York apartment listings that it was actually coming from the brokers themselves that they said, hey, charge us some money so that these like scammers can't just put, you know, hundreds of fake listings and get all the traffic you know, we like good brokers want to pay a little bit of money and actually limit the the volume of, of spam. Yeah. And I agree with you, David, that the Apple interview was really superb. Steve Wozniak is a great person. I've seen him speak a few times. I've read his autobiography. He writes in his autobiography exactly as he speaks in this interview. So if people are interested in learning more, his biography is I was. But basically, he's just a super down to earth person who was always in it for the engineering. And he was not this person who wanted to start this big company. That was Steve Jobs. And he convinced him, hey, you're building this, this great computer. We should really turn it into a company and then we can have some freedom and, and do something big. But he himself, he was this humble engineer, but he's not so humble in this interview in some ways. He kind of, there's a, several points in the interview where he says, I was the only one who could come up with that design. That design was so clever. Um, and other people, it was just so far ahead of what other people were doing and nobody else could figure out how I did it so well with so few chips and that sort of thing. And he's, he's kind of known for the humble brag. And I'd say this was just a little bit of bragging. I wouldn't say it was all humble brag. I'd say it was just bragging, but he does, even so it's interesting that he can be so arrogant in some ways and at the same time still come off as so down to earth and in some ways relatable in that he, he seems to not be this like, Machiavellian, stereotypical business person. Instead, he's this down-to-earth engineer who like wants to do something good for the planet and happens it happens to be a great business as well. So I'm gonna pick one myself too. I really liked the Web TV interview. And for people that don't know what Web TV is, it was literally having the web on your TV for a few years. It was popular in the late 90s and became a component of Microsoft. And that was Steve Perlman. And I thought what was so amazing about that story was how quickly they developed a combination hardware-software product from idea to execution in like a few months, really. It was like less than a year that they, they had working prototypes for what was really quite sophisticated software. And that he had done the same thing with like an online network for playing video games on the NES and Sega Genesis just a few years before. Here was a guy who had such incredible engineering skills, but also the ability to bring other people together at a company that he could put together a really sophisticated hardware software product in just a matter of months. So that was one that really stood out to me. Yeah, I felt really bad for Steve Perlman. I felt like he just had all these incredible ideas that like were the future, but he was just always like five to 10 years ahead. Well, ultimately happened in that company. So he sold it to Microsoft. He sold Web TV to Microsoft for a nice amount of money. 
The first company, it ended up being profitable, but not in terms of the sale value, but not successful as a business. They never were turning a profit uh, at the business level, the video game company. Would you guys say after reading all these stories that having having business savvy is more important than being a good technologist? No, I absolutely, I mean, and I'm a little biased being a technologist myself, but my takeaway was that a lot of these companies were founded by people who had both skills. They were technical people who also had some business skills. And there were also some cases where there were technical people like Craig Newmark, who then brought in business people pretty quickly. But you need to have a skill to be able to do something. You can't create something out of nothing if you don't have some kind of skill set to begin with, or you have somebody else who has a skill set along for the ride with you. The book itself is going to be biased because obviously Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston mostly work with software companies. So I guess what I had a feeling about was that luck actually is like a big part of all of this, that like it wasn't super clear to me what was really different about the people that really succeeded and the ones that didn't necessarily, that some of the ones that, I mean, they all succeeded to make it into this book, right? But there's like varying levels of success and there didn't seem to be like, a, oh, okay, the person who had some sales experience and like actually a business sense like was critical. Instead, it was kind of a you need all of those things. And then you also need like a decent amount of luck in order to win, which I guess I've kind of always known. But yeah, it, it, it no like pattern really struck me from all of this other than work hard, be willing to pivot, you know, listen to your customers, keep trying until you actually find, you know, product market fit. Talking about pivots, I thought one of the great pivots was the TripAdvisor chapter with uh, Stephen Kaufer, where they were originally building a database of travel information that they were going to license to travel sites. And instead, they ended up becoming the travel site. I don't know if there were other pivots that you thought were, were really interesting in the book. I mean, the PayPal story is obviously really interesting. And yeah, we hadn't brought it up before, but the first chapter is an interview with Max Lovechen, which I really enjoyed. The history there, I, I did know a little bit before, but you know, hearing it from Max was, was different from anything I'd read before which was that originally they wanted to do, honestly, I'm not even going to remember all of the details, but basically they, the main product that they raised a bunch of money off of was the idea of using like a Palm Pilot in order to exchange money. And right. there just was no real scale with that. It didn't really make sense. It took up like all of the hard drive of the Palm Pilot to just have that payments mechanism. They did manage to raise some money with their like first prototype using that Palm Pilot to Palm Pilot money exchange but they quickly pivoted towards just your email account sort of being the way that you would be able to, to transit money with login to, to PayPal. But I found that whole story really fascinating. And the funniest part about it was that he literally would not say Elon Musk's name. So he just talks about yeah. like the founder of X.com became the CEO for a little while and he wanted to switch to Microsoft, which I wasn't into, but luckily he left after a little while like, oh, but we're like, we're good friends. It's like, really? You're good friends, but you won't even say his name? <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was amazing that he would sh throw so much shade on Elon Musk that he couldn't even bring himself to say the name. Great, great call out. And, you know, throughout this book, in all these interviews, people were no holds bar. I mean, they were out there bad mouthing people by name sometimes. And other times it would be very easy to look up who they were bad mouthing, which I thought was interesting and maybe speaks to Jessica Livingston as an interviewer that she was able to make them feel so comfortable that they would really tell the true story, including all the warts. Do you guys know how the interviews were conducted? Were they conducted in writing or were they done like kind of over the phone and in person and then the ums and ahs were taken out? Yeah. So having done a lot of interviews myself in a different podcast I used to host and just through some writing stuff I've done, I think that these were done verbally and then with some heavy editing after. That's my impression based on reading them. I don't think these were most of them, at least, I don't think were, were written interviews. What'd you guys think of that Catherine fake Flickr uh, interview? I thought that was, especially with what uh, she and her husband have gone on to do, was one of the most interesting. Well, they were about to get divorced when this was recorded, actually. So uh, she and Stuart broke up, well, at least shortly after the book came out. I don't know when the actual interview was conducted, but gives you, gives you some insight into the the relationship uh, and some of the struggles that she talked about that apparently they were <laughs> ultimately a little bit insurmountable. But I, I found the whole Flickr story really fascinating and, and pivoting back to what we were just talking about. 
uh, is definitely a big, uh, big pivot story as well. Molson, I'll let you tell that one. Yeah, so I'm not going to remember it as well as you do, I'm sure. But she started out with Stuart Butterfield, who's the uh, founder of Slack today, I guess without her since they divorced. Yep. Um, they founded a MMORPG, so a multi a mu- multiplayer online. Massive role- multiplayer. Massive. Thank you for the second half. Yep. Massive multiplayer online role-playing game. And I think that like in their spare time or they hit some sort of development sl- a snag, they decided to come out with a photo sharing service, which was called Flickr. And that uh, quite quickly just outstripped the growth of their original uh, MMORPG and they just shifted completely towards it. So is that a, that's not even like a pivot. It's like just a whole, it's like a 360 flip. Well, it was a feature of the social part of the MMORPG. So I, I would call it a pivot, but yeah, I agree with you that the the part fact that they divorced shortly after this interview is pretty telling. And I actually did a lot of Googling about that. Maybe that's creepy. I don't know. But I did a lot of Googling about it. And it's, they actually had a kid like right before they divorced, which was also kind of interesting. And you wonder if just the pressure of doing a company together on top of having a child together all at the same time just might have been too much for the relationship. They also had a pretty overlapping skill set, which... I could see being a pretty big issue. Yeah, absolutely. And then they've both been successful on their own after that. So they've both founded what seemed like, obviously Slack is super successful, but what she's done also seems to be semi-successful. So maybe it was just, you know, two amazing people together who butted heads a bit. After speaking of another female founder, what did you guys think of that Anne Winblad interview? (laughs) That was like a lot to take in. Um, she, She just... She just keeps going and going. She like doesn't know when to stop one story and start a different story. And so I, I found it a little like hard to follow in that I wasn't sure what I was supposed to get out of what she was saying. But it certainly interesting being at the Federal Reserve Bank and then you know jumping into software from that. But it that's one where it sounded to me like this could have used a little more editing. It was funny because for me it was just like oh. So my mom worked at the Federal Reserve for, um, I don't know, 20 years or so. And around the same time, and she'd actually you know told me at one point about how when she wrote her dissertation, she had to you know use punch cards in order to you know do the analysis and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, wow, so you're like a computer programmer. She was like, no, I could just do the punch card stuff. I was like, I mean, that's like a lot harder than anything <laughs> I could do. Um, and it's funny because my mom now is like largely computer illiterate, uh, I think because she retired before... <laughs> You know, desktop computers were super prevalent, at least in the Federal Reserve. And it was just like kind of a funny like, oh, wow, like I guess she could have been a a startup founder with the exact same background as this Anne Winblad, who, you know, I guess ultimately became um, one of the first female VCs. And so that, that part was kind of interesting. And I guess they said that her VC firm was actually the first to have a thesis purely focused on software, which is also like fascinating. So she sounds like this brilliant person, but I agree that the the chapter itself was not all that great. The one story that I found fun and well, just honestly, that I really remember super clearly was when she was in the room pitching people and just told them that if they wrote a $10,000 check that day, then, you know, they would get the, get the software for 10 grand. And I, I don't know, I think it was some kind of exploding offer. It was going to be more expensive later on. And that, you know, no one had their corporate checkbooks, but, you know, 12 people or 15 people or whatever wrote personal checks for 10 grand to her. And she basically said it was probably just because they liked her and enjoyed the pitch, not so much that they really, you know, necessarily thought they were going to get a great deal on the software. So I don't know, that, that, that part was fun. And just talking about not having a cell phone and having to go to the payphone at the airport to call people and say, I've got 150 grand in my purse was just like <laughs> a fun story. Yeah, that was a great story. I think it was 12 out of 15. So there were like 15 different companies there or something. And 12 out of 15 wrote her checks that day to get in on the software. So she must be a great salesperson. But another thing I liked about the book was how Jessica Livingston would put very deliberately chapters that were related next to each other. So one example of that is early on, the people who worked on Apple computers to start their company came right after the Apple computer interview. So for example, Dan Bricklin doing VisiCalc, which was a killer app for the Apple II, was positioned in such a way that it kind of flowed with it. And then similar, Ray Ozzy and Mitchell Kapoor, Lotus was the developer of the software that Ray Ozzy worked on, whereas Lotus was developed by Mitchell Kapoor. So she, she did a very good job kind of making some of the interviews flow into one another, which I really appreciated. 
Yeah, it was really interesting because it was almost like a point counterpoint kind of thing where someone would tell their story and then in the, and, and then you're kind of like, oh, I wonder where this went. And then the next chapter, it's like, oh, this is where it went. So, you know, I was reading about Visicalc and I was like, oh, if, if it was if it was the first thing, then then what happened after that? And I'm like, oh, Lotus one, two, three. That I had heard of. I, I, I guess I'd heard of Visicalc, but I didn't really know too much about it. But then the whole Lotus story was really fascinating too, where with Lotus Notes, they had actually... I'm going to miss the details, but I think it's the next chapter then is Iris Associates, where I think he had worked at Lotus, but he didn't really like it. And so he decided to start his own company, but he had a deal with Lotus that they were going to distribute the software for him. And so he basically wrote Lotus Notes as an independent contractor. And then I think they ultimately ended up acquiring him pretty shortly after the development completed. And so it sort of folded back into the company. But that was kind of funny too, because Lotus had struggled so much themselves operating in that same model of trying to sell their software through like a third party and all the complications and whatnot that came from, or or sorry, no, it's VisiCalc that had had that problem before. And then they kind of repeated the same mistake (laughs) themselves with with the Lotus Notes as well. And then even later in the book, I, I don't remember which chapter it is, someone even like references that as part of their story of like, oh, you know, we knew that Iris Associates had developed software and they'd been able to have it distributed by Lotus Notes. So we were hoping that we could do something similar because we didn't think we had sales skills. Uh, but then, you know, they ended up needing to get acquired. So we sort of realized that like that model was never really going to work. Yeah, I think what you're referring to is Joel Spolsky and Fog Creek Software. Um, they were originally going to be consultants and they were going to develop a product. And maybe they'd even in their dreams have someone else sell the product, kind of like Iris did with Lotus. That was another one that also ran next to a related interview in that before that chapter was Philip Greenspun, who founded Ars Digita, which was a consulting company kind of at the heart, height of the dot-com boom. And then the next chapter, Joel Spolsky founds his company, Fog Creek Software, as a consulting company, and he was inspired by Ars Digita. But in, Ars, in the Ars Digita chapter, Philip Greenspun says, oh, the reason the company failed is because the VCs brought in this really bad management. And then Joel Spolsky totally contradicts that in the next chapter. He says all the consulting companies went out of business that were in software consulting in their early OOs because of the dot-com crash and then September 11th. So it really had nothing to do with with the fact that bad management came in. So that, yeah, they point counterpoint, they respond to each other in the book, which is great. Yeah. And I guess one thing that that makes me think of is just that when I looked at this book, it felt like, oh, there's like 33 different chapters talking to different founders. You know, I could just read this picking and choosing, which I did a little bit. I I, I did skip a couple of chapters uh, as we got closer to recording and I, I wanted to get through everything, especially the the Jessica chapter at the end. But I think that's really not true because of, you know, what you were just talking about, the structure of similar companies around the same time, tackling similar plot problems, being right next to each other. It actually does make sense to read it in order. One thing I wish that they had was the dates of the interviews, because, again, I sort of talked about the uh, the PayPal, you know, Elon Musk. You know, Elon hadn't done a lot of the amazing things that, you know, he's, he's done now when when this was written. And I'm sure that's part of it. I'm sure if, if Max were given that speech now, he would. Or, you know, interview now, he would know that everyone knows who Elon Musk is and that you can't say the founder of X.com. <laughs> Although, frankly, a lot of people probably don't know what X.com is, even if they do know who Elon is. But Ev Williams was also a fascinating interview because it's it's before Twitter. And so it's, right. it's Ev Williams just talking about Blogger and Odeo. And if you look at the dates, like Twitter was live at this point. Again, if it's you know sort of based on when the book was published, but I don't know how many years before the interview was actually conducted. So I'm not sure if Ev just like didn't really think Twitter was even worth talking about, or you know Jessica was obviously focused more on Blogger because that was the the success that it actually sold at that point. But it's just funny to read this like long interview with Ev Williams that has nothing to do with Twitter. Yeah, it's really interesting. And just for context for everybody, the book is copyright 2008, but a lot of the interviews are 2005, 2006. And you can kind of glean that from some of the information in the interviews. But like David said, there's no actual dates given to each interview, which is a shoddy bit of uh, writing on the part of Jessica Livingston. So important to date primary source documents. And these interviews are primary source historical documents. So there's a demerit for you, Jessica, on that. She'll never live that down. Yeah, yeah. Not like she's successful. So this book actually features an interview with Paul Graham, who today is the the husband, I was going to say wife, of Jessica Livingston. And they were also partners together at Y Combinator. They founded Y Combinator together. We read Paul Graham's book, Hackers and Painters, in episode five of this podcast. I'm wondering, you had some kind of impression of Paul Graham after reading Hackers and Painters, knowing him as a public personality. 
did your opinion of him change in any way after hearing this interview? And was it interesting to you since they are now married um, that Jessica interviewed him in this book? So I enjoyed the chapter with Paul. Um, I think it just told me more about the founding of ViaWeb and whatnot than I maybe knew beforehand. So, you know, Hackers and Painters is just sort of like his philosophical essays. And some of it gives a little bit of insight into ViaWeb. But this was much more focused on, you know, how did it go about? How was it founded? You know, why did he work with Robert? Those kinds of things, which, which I found very interesting. The other funny thing that I found is that I now have listened to enough PG interviews and whatnot that I actually do read his words like in his voice, which is, uh, I think, the only person in the, the book that that would be true for. So I don't know. That part was, was funny to me as well. For me, that was Steve Wozniak. I've, I've seen so much of Steve Wozniak and read so many books about him that I kind of read that, that chapter in his voice. That's a great point. I actually, yeah, I had it with Woz too. Yeah. Is, was there a founder in this book that came across to you as just lucky? So not somebody who really earned it, but somebody who really was just in the right place at the right time and didn't really work hard for what they accomplished? James Hong of Hot or Not just came off as... I don't know, such a bro. And like Jessica even seemed to try and like get him to back off on it a little bit. And some of the questions that he just like plowed right ahead of just like, yeah, things are awesome. And she was like, well, did you like worry how people might think of you about like creating a website hot or not? And he was like, why would I care? People like hot women. Like, it was just like, yeah, all right, dude. <laughs> and then I also thought it was crazy that he turned down three to five million after two months. Like he literally was unemployed worked on the, just out of business school, worked on this thing for two months, was offered three to five million and turned it down. Now, of course, you know, with hindsight, you say, oh, well, he did a lot better than that. But I think that was totally crazy given that Hot or Not was not a compli- I mean, he said he, he set up the first version in four days. It was not a complicated site to program. It was not like some kind of proprietary thing. I would have definitely taken the three to five million. Yeah, he does talk about there are a couple of things that I did actually learn from it, though, even though, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trashing him a little bit here, which was that he managed to get a lot of stuff for free, which I thought was kind of interesting. So like he needed to scale the company, whatever, they were getting all this traffic. And so he managed to convince Rackspace to just give them the, you know, server space and that they would sort of figure it out in the future. And so they were just like, they didn't have any money. And, you know, Rackspace wanted some PR. And so he said, like, hey, we'll say Rackspace is, you know, we're, we're powered by Rackspace or whatever. And I'm sure eventually they paid them some money. But, you know, on that alone, he was able to scale the company without having to buy all the servers and whatnot that he would have needed. Yeah, absolutely. And was there an interview in the book that you really didn't like? So it just really was like a waste of your time reading that interview. So I found the interview with, I'm blanking on his name, but the the founder of RIM, uh, Research in Motion, to be yeah. one of the, the least valuable. I think he's a fascinating guy. And there were a couple of like interesting tidbits. Molson, I know you posted about the uh, start your company in a college town and you know be able to do the recruiting that way. I thought that story was really interesting. But I think, honestly, what it made me think is that be- he was still the co-CEO of a publicly traded firm. And I do wonder, I, I haven't actually like mapped this across the whole book, but like were the people who are still like CEOs or, you know, board members or whatever, I guess probably a lot of them are board members, but, you know, very public facing, were they a little bit more guarded and a little bit less willing to sort of, I don't know, tell the unvarnished truth? Because at the time, Research in Motion is like, the iPhone is about to launch. It's like kind of a fascinating time to like get real insight into where they were. And instead it felt a little bit more of just like a, you know, self-hagiography almost. Could it have been because he was older? I mean, uh, how old was James Hong when he gave that pretty strange interview? I kind of got the impression twenties. generally the guys Early 30s. fired more shots who were more willing to start fights were on the younger end. Totally agree with that. And I just want to add to the RIM interview that um, a book on this topic that I read is called Losing the Signal. It's the story of RIM from start to end, basically, because the company is not what it used to be. And I did not think that Mike Lazuridis was like a great, uh, a great business runner, let's say. I don't think he was a great co-CEO. At least that was my impression from from losing the signal. So I kind of got the same impression from from this book. I think he might have been a good technologist for his time. It's interesting the book is from 2008 because he was caught so flat-footed 
by the iPhone that it's just like crazy how flat-footed they were caught by the iPhone. Yeah, but like everyone was, right? Like, I mean, when did he found Rim? Okay, but but check this out, right? They were even Android, which was coming out from Google a year later, right? Android launches in 2008 was caught flat-footed by the iPhone because they were going to do a BlackBerry-like phone in 2007. But they adopted, adapted, excuse me, they adapted and re-envisioned their phone to be multi-touch within a year, right? BlackBerry already had all the other technology. They, they were just missing basically multi-touch and a better operating system, which is a big thing. That's not like a little thing or something, right? But Google adapted in about a year and was able to launch with something that wasn't great at first. It took a couple of years to really be competitive with the iPhone from a technology level, but they got there. BlackBerry didn't get there till 2015. That's seven years later, right? That's crazy when they launched BlackBerry 10. And BlackBerry 10 was too little, too late. Palm even, Palm launched their WebOS-based operating system with the Palm Pre in 2010. So that's three years after the iPhone, right? And they also had like a BlackBerry-like operating system in terms of its sophistication before that. But in three years, they turned it around. So Google turned it around in, in a couple of years. Palm was able to launch something that was competitive, even though it wasn't successful from a business standpoint a few years later. BlackBerry took seven years, right? So here's this guy who's on top of the world when Jessica's interviewing him, and he's literally at the point right before he falls off a cliff. And right. so I think it's a really interesting time to interview him. But I think he's not a great business guy. I, I agree totally that it was super good time to interview him. Pretty interesting in the context of his company basically about to implode. Not exactly implode. I mean, RIM is still a publicly traded company and it, well, well, it doesn't have the leadership <laughs> that it could have had, but it, sure, it's still worth many hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, he founded the company in 1984 and he ran it. It's to this day... It exists. It's publicly traded. He ran it for 24 years until he had that that Steve Jobs size stumbling block. And it's in Canada. It wasn't in Silicon Valley. So imagine how much harder that would have been. I, I don't know. I find him and his story to be super impressive. I don't know as much about him as you do because I haven't read that book. I just think co-CEO is a really weird thing. So I don't know, Kopech, you read that whole book. How did that even happen? Like, Why are there co-CEOs? Because one was more on the business side, one was more on the technology side, but they had been working together for so long and they were like best friends and all that sort of thing. Um, that, that's kind of how it happened. But, you know, that was the edge of a cliff, Molson. They, they lost tens of billions of dollars of market value. Like their market cap, I just looked it up as we're talking, is now $3 billion. Okay, it used to be something like $100 billion. Yeah, but you can't say that he's not a capable. I think he's probably one of the most competent, capable founders in this book. He's definitely in the, like the top 25% of founders in terms of what he created. For his era. What I'm saying is that we got him at the end of his era, right? And like he was not a founder for the iPhone era. He was a founder for the early wireless technology era. They did some amazing things in that era. Would you say the same thing about Bill Gates? No, because he, he left on top. He quit while he was on top. I mean, he was still chairman. Yeah, but that's not, that's not the, and Microsoft is a trillion dollar company now. I mean, that they never had a crash where they went from 100 billion to 3 billion. So I don't know. Yeah, and I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from what he built. He built something incredible, but I'm just so interesting to see him like in this context right before you fall off a cliff. I mean, it, it's really a, an important interview historically, I would say, for the technology industry. But I don't think you can get a huge amount of insight about the modern mobile like market from this interview because this is a company that's about to implode because they don't understand the modern mobile. But you probably don't want like the way I approach these interviews is I don't want to get that insight. Like I don't want to learn about mobile. I want to learn the lessons that are as applicable in the 80s as they are in the 90s and the 2000s until today. That's always what I'm seeking out. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I'm also looking for the technology insight too in some of these interviews. Um, so I guess we're coming at it from different perspectives. I think just to add one, Molson, you're right. He's obviously an incredible, you know, he built an incredible business, whether or not he's the best CEO among them or whatever, I, whatever, it's, it's sort of a, a moot point. But I definitely did learn some things from him. And actually the, the part that I found really interesting was just his story of like high school where there was just all this crazy technology that someone had just bought and sent to his school. And he and some of his friends just kind of tinkered around in the basement and figured out like very cutting edge technology just by virtue of being interested and willing to play around and, you know, having that 
you know, opportunity. I wonder how involved in, you know, technology education and whatnot he is now, given that sort of remarkable opportunity he'd had as a child. Yeah. And I will say that he was a borderline prodigy from what I read in Losing the Signal. So, you know, a lot of props to him and everything. I'm just saying that the timing of the interview was especially prescient. So it sounds like you guys might believe more in the importance of luck than I do. The way I kind of come at these problems or the problem of to what extent luck affects your success is luck is a multiplier. So Bill Gates was lucky in that he was oriented towards computers and he was lucky to have been at that time in that place. And he was lucky that there was a computer in his high school, kind of like Mike Lazaridis. I don't know how to say his name, but if he had gone into like food and beverage, consumer products, if he had decided to be like the world's greatest table entrepreneur, there's a table in front of me. First thing that came to my mind, I, I still think the guy would have been enormously successful. Does that, do you guys kind of agree with my concept of, of luck as a multiplier or no? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think luck is a requirement, but not a sufficient condition, right? Like, having the hundred billion, whatever trillion dollar company, you have to have luck in order to get that. Having a successful business, you have to have grit, I think is the sort of, so like he would have been a millionaire, I'm sure, regardless of whether or not he happened to invent the BlackBerry um, or, you know, whatever he, he started as just like doing consulting with telecom companies and stuff. So clearly, you know, even when they founded the business, it wasn't on the idea that we're going to do email over the phone. They, they came into that over time based on the technology that they were focusing on. And they even had to sort of help build the physical infrastructure before it was even possible. So totally agree. He would have succeeded regardless of any luck. It's like the fact that it became a $100 billion company, I think luck had a lot to do with. Well, you know, there's a great quote from Thomas Jefferson, where, which goes, um, the harder I work, the luckier I seem to get, right? Which is I think every person in this book, one, one thing that was universal was that they worked ridiculous hours and they worked extremely hard to the detriment of the rest of their lives for months and sometimes years on end when they were just at the very beginning of the company. So I don't think that anyone in this book just got lucky. Even James Hong, who started Hot or Not, like he worked really hard for those two months, okay, before he got the three to $5 million offer. So yeah, no, of course there's hard work, but there also is having met the right people in your life who found the company with you because all of them basically had co-founders. There might have been one or two that didn't. There is the luck, like you said, of having the right interests, right? Like you happen to be somebody who was into software when the dot-com boom was going on. So luck plays a role, but I, I don't think luck is sufficient for any of these, not even close. I think hard work is the prerequisite. And I'd say luck, like you said, is a multiplier. So I agree with you. There's a quote I pulled down um, and I just uh, bolded luck above it, which was, uh, this came from the, the web TV chapter, but he said they, they were trying to, to demonstrate before Sony and uh, they had just uh, like put, put out some new software and it was like currently compiling and they like didn't have anything else at the time. And so it was just like kind of, a, all right, we got to flip the switch and hope it works. And we turned the thing on and I don't know how, but it was perfect. It ran perfectly. It just happened to be a good build. It was pure chance, but it went through all the paces. We could go to websites and we typed in URLs and went to all the different things. And there it was. Web TV did what it was supposed to. You could see the web on the TV. And it's like that company, the way he was telling it was that like they needed that money immediately and they were going to fail otherwise. And they just got lucky that the build that happened to be compiling was actually working of, you know, many of their other builds, whatever, were buggy and failed. But that one just happened to work out when the person was there. But there's always another meeting. <laughs> right. Yeah. And not only that, they, they put in tens of thousands of man hours and woman hours into that build, right? So that, yes, they, that build happened to work, but it wasn't like they just scratched a lottery ticket or something, right? That build was the result of a, the end of a ridiculously long chain of hard work. Yeah, again, I think we're all on the same page in terms of like hard work is the like critical and necessary component to any of these successes. I think it's just that the things actually were, again, I'm pretty sure in that, in that instance, he was saying they were basically going to fail if that meeting didn't go through. Now, you're right. They could have, whatever, tried something else. They're, they're gritty. They would have done something to try and figure it out beyond just like, oh, this failed in this one meeting, whatever. They would have flown out to Japan and they did end up doing that, whatever, a few weeks later too. So I think you're right that being lucky in one particular instance is not the reason that you're successful. The reason that you're successful is the hard work and the grit. And you're right. The long hours was something that definitely came up, up a couple of different times, which 
I think, yeah, like to really succeed in these kinds of ways, you honestly just need to be really passionate about the thing that you're going after. And so a lot of the like crazy hard work isn't necessarily just like drive on success, but like you really care about the thing that you're working on and you really want it to make you know sense and to solve problems for people regardless of the money. That was something that did come come through through a lot of the chapters was that like if you're focused on getting money, you're not going to succeed. I'm not 100% sure that that's always true. I think there are people that have been like fully motivated by money that have succeeded, but I think it I think it's generally the the right way to approach it that if all you're trying to do is get rich, then whatever, go into finance or something like that, but if what you're trying to do is solve problems, then, you know, build a company and actually, you know, maybe you'll get lucky and it will become incredibly successful and you'll make more money, but you're definitely going to fail if you don't care about the problem that you're going after. I've got a question for you guys. So throughout the book, uh, I feel like a recurring theme was the horrors of venture capital. And another was founder disputes. Today, when you apply for Y Combinator, applications that do not feature a co-founder are looked upon disfavorably. And Y Combinator is always a stepping stone to receiving more venture money. How do you reconcile uh, Jessica Livingston being the, sounds like the CEO of Y Combinator with all the terrible things that were associated with venture capital and co-founder conflicts? How do you reconcile those two things? Well, one thing about the co-founder conflicts, I want to go to the interview with Joel Spolsky. He said at the end of it, to be successful with a startup, you have to quit your job. That way you you have no choice but to succeed and you have to have a co-founder so that you have somebody else who you have to be responsible to. So that alone, having somebody else that's in the trenches with you that you have to be responsible to, I think can be a motivating factor for success. So I, I'm not going to say that that there can't be, obviously, Molson, you're a solo founder originally, right? I think you, you founded one of your companies with your brother, but you founded Via Heart basically on your own, right? I had a co-founder for about really? a month and then we had a fight and we went our separate ways and I okay, just proceeded. Okay, so what's, what's a month, right? A month is not really the founding of the company. I mean, maybe on paper it is, but right? Well... I don't know. I, I still feel in a way like shame that we split up. I'm still kind of embarrassed about that, even though it was a month relative to the 10 years without that person afterwards. I've been running the business for 10 years. But at this point in my life, I would not start another business with a co-founder. Really? So oh, yeah, Because of the sure. potential conflict? Yeah, man. I'm just sick and tired of it. I just want to be able to make my own decisions 100%. And I know that you founded a company. You had a co-founder. You also had some co-founder conflicts. I'm I'm almost surprised to hear that you would do it again the same way. I, I don't think I would because the type of company I want to start next is... Well, I would. I would, I would start with a technical co-founder. I would like to have... So I want to do a software company when I'm older. But isn't that in kind of conflict with what we were talking about or, or is the idea, I view you as someone with tremendous like technical computer science expertise. Obviously, you're a professor, you that's know your you shit. Say, I don't know about that. You see, that that's what I would like, actually. I'd like to have like a 10x engineer on my side. Of course, they're unicorns, right? And I'll be the half engineering, half doing the business side. Ah, okay. Um, gotcha. That's, that's what I, I would see myself as my role. But But I could do it on my own. You're right. Like, And that's my dream. My dream is to do that when you know, later in life, let's say. Well, my dream was to found a company with Copec, but apparently I'm not technical enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we can, maybe we can find something. <laughs> I'll fund you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so well, how do you guys feel about venture capital about reading this? After Not reading good. This? Not good. You're right. There was a lot of negativity in here about venture capital. And a lot of, there were some people actually said, oh, the venture capitalists were great. But of course it's like, who was your venture capitalist? Like it is with anything, right? Everyone I speak to who goes through this process is always like, dude, if you can get away with it without the venture capital, do that. Like avoid those guys at all costs. Right. Because they don't really understand the business at a deep level, right? They're just taking a lot of bets and they act like they understand the business at a deep level. But it's not like when they're coming into most of these software companies that the people in the venture capital firms are themselves software people. And that's one of the things that Jessica says in her interview is really great about Y Combinator, that several of the partners are actually deep software people themselves, experienced programmers who understand the technical issues of the companies that they invest in. 
And so if your venture capitalist really understands your industry, then I could see how they could add a ton of value. And if they even understand your product and how it's built, I could see how they could add a ton of value. But if they're just money and then they're going to come and try to make decisions over your head, then I, I don't see the, the positivity in that unless you can't have any other way of getting to the next level. We watched this YouTube uh, interview of this pretty famous guy who made a lot of money at Facebook and who's now a venture capitalist named Chamath. And uh, Chamath Palalala, I don't know how to say his last name. And he was saying that in the 2020 venture capital market, all these guys were raising massive amounts of money and then encouraging their, the, the companies that they were investing in to spend it all so they could show paper growth. So then they could um, show their limited partners that their investments were growing through follow-on investments. So he was basically saying that venture capitalists understood that things like uh, the WeWork debacle and whatever's going on with SoftBank, whatever's going on with all these other failed venture capital-backed startups, that was something that they were understanding. So my question to you guys is, do you think that venture capitalists in 99, 98, 2000 knew that they were in a bubble? Or were they as blinded to what was around the corner as the retail investors who got killed in uh, March of 2000? So I think that they, not all of them knew they were in a bubble. And here's the reason why. There's this, um, this lady who does this internet trends report every year. I forgot her name. Maybe one of you remember Mary the name. Mary Meeker. Right, Mary Meeker. And she was an analyst at the time for somebody can rem- David, you probably know this too. Was it JP Morgan or Goldman? I don't I know. I think it was City, but I'm actually not sure. Okay. So she was an analyst at the time and she was just saying, bye, 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 bye. That was her analysis. Go buy like everything. And she's actually like a respected person today for a lot of other things. But at the time, she was just constantly encouraging everybody to buy. And she's supposed to be like an expert on this industry. And she was doing that all the way up to a couple months before the crash, right? And so if one of the most prominent analysts didn't understand that this was like a massive bubble, then I think there was a lot of people who probably didn't understand that this was a massive bubble who were deeply involved. But then again, you know, I wasn't, I was alive at the time, obviously, but I wasn't, you know, old enough to really understand everything that was going on. So it'd be interesting if you guys know some resources where we can read more about that. It was Morgan Stanley, just FYI. So okay. Mary Meeker spent most of her career there. She was an analyst at that time, right? She wasn't a venture capitalist. Though. Right. She was an analyst. Okay. Yeah. Molson, I think, I think you're right that one, I thought that video was phenomenal. We should definitely include a link to it in the, in the show notes. I do take it a little bit with a grain of salt because he is like, also, he has social capital, and it seems like they've like changed their strategy a few times and things like that. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. that I, I totally trust him on it. But I think that the basic premise that a lot of VCs are basically just a Ponzi scheme where they put money in and then that money goes into you know Amazon and Google ads and Facebook ads in order to grow their number of users or whatever the core metric is that they're you know going to try and raise the next round off of. And they know that that's actually like they're losing money relative to the lifetime value of the customer. They're just throwing that money at like the next round. I'm sure that that exists. I'm not sure that it's like all of what VC is now. I would imagine that if that is the case, there's going to be another huge bubble and, you know, a bunch of people are going to end up, you know, whatever the, what's the, uh, the quote from, from Buffett. I think he actually even talks about it in that, in that article, maybe. When the tide goes out, you get to see who's been swimming naked. Yep. But that being said, I mean, my, my guess would be that more VCs knew it was a bubble than did not, but that there was, you know, a significant portion of people that thought they were investing in things that were going to be really successful, but they just like needed to turn a corner or whatever. And, you know, the reality was no, like you, you can't, whatever pets.com, you, you, the shipping of dog food is too expensive to, you know, justify the million dollars you spent on your Super Bowl ad. And, you know, your unit economics are completely shot. So, you know, growing the base is just going to increase the speed with which you burn money. Um, I think those kinds of things do feel like they're going away a little bit right now, right? Like with the Uber and Lyft and WeWork IPOs, I do feel like there's like kind of a, a industry-wide uh, fear of growth without profit at this point. And so, you know, I, yeah, I, I do think we're in a bubble. I do think that part of that is, is VC-driven. I think a lot of it is probably not known, though. I think a lot of them probably do think they're putting money into like smart things that, you know, will figure it out down the line. And, you know, 
I'm obviously not a VC and don't have the the money to make to make those investments, frankly. But I would be focused on unit economics. I'm, I'd be willing to invest in something that's not currently profitable. But if you can't actually deliver your product without losing money on it, then clearly that's you haven't figured out your business at that point. I say that the unicorns are underwater. They're narwhals. <laughs> <laughs> I asked the question earlier about interviews you thought were not very good. Um, I'm going to add one into that list. Joshua Schachter, I think it's how it's pronounced, for Delicious. I thought that oh, was the worst. That. Yeah, I, I think I told you to skip it. I think it was the worst interview in the book. He just It was almost like he didn't want to be interviewed. And he was like almost offended by the questions and his responses. Like they were... It was just dumb. It just, I just there was literally no value. I think in that entire interview, people who can't, you know, take questions like that seriously, I guess, can't found successful companies. Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess he was semi-successful. He sold it to Yahoo, right? So it he well, did okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> ignore me, Jessica Livingston. I have to say, I think she was a good interviewer. I, I give her credit. She was pretty consistent. She actually asked some of the same questions uh, across a lot of the interviews. And she, but she knew when to dive a little bit deeper, and she really got people to open up. So I give her a lot of props for the for the entire book. I wish all these interviews had been on YouTube. Uh, I love that like visual, facial gesture, body language dimension. I was missing out on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, is there any final things we want to add about the book? What's your startup story? Well. I don't want to get into all the details, but first I did a startup with some guys. They were in business school and I was almost like, you know, their helper, like their collaborator. Um, and it was like a coupon swap business. And they were the founders, not me. Um, and I was building the product for them. And then we had some dispute about, you know, how much work I'd put in versus I built the whole thing like from scratch. And so I'd done all the code. You know, then the way that they treated me kind of, I did that all over a summer after that summer. And also, like, how much ownership I had over that. We got into a big dispute and, and I left and uh, we actually had like a legal settlement. And then I did a startup after graduate school with a really nice guy out in California. I, I was, I wanted to do a startup. So I was in graduate school for computer science and I was on AngelList and I was just, applying to like tons of stuff on AngelList. And I had this crazy interview schedule. It was the part of the beginning of the bubble that David was talking about before. This was 2012. So about eight years ago, this bubble was just getting started. But there was a real hype around startups again. And I was doing interviews every day. I was doing like, sometimes I'd have like five of them back to back. And I was trying to decide on which, which of these startups I want to go, go join. I, I got a couple offers by the point that I was making a decision. And I liked, I've always liked cars a lot. So I went and joined really nice guy out in California doing a startup called Carhound. And the concept was we were going to be a reverse auction for selling new cars. So you have a car you want to buy. Maybe it's a Audi A4 in red or something, right? And some particular features you want with it. And we would get local dealers to bid for your business in a reverse auction. And this was all the, co the founder's idea. And I, I came on as his technical co-founder. And what we found very quickly was that people wanted to buy a big item like a car at that time in 2012, not completely online. They weren't really willing to make a big transaction like that and have the trust in a startup to buy a big purchase like that online. Maybe today it would be different. And so what we found we had to do, and this was my idea, but I kind of hate it because it, it made us into salespeople, is we found we had to call every single person who came through our funnel on the website to try to start an auction. So we had to literally pick up the phone and call them. So then our office became like a call center. And we, we would spend all day just calling these people up, you know, and then calling them the dealers. The dealers were very technology averse at the time. They still are car dealers. And so we actually created a portal for them to go and like make their bids on these auctions. But none of them wanted to use the portal. So what would end up happening is then we had to call all the different dealers to get their bids. And so the whole thing just became incredibly labor intensive and very, very much a manual process. And so this went on. I was there for, I think, seven or eight months, um, seven months, I think. And we were running out of money. Uh, he had raised money, friends and family round. And we were running out of money and we'd only sold maybe like 30 something cars. And, you know, we would collect on the back end like $200 a car. So you do the math. It's like, 
you know, $7,000. And this was totally not scalable, making all these phone calls constantly for every car. And then on top of it all, I got very, very, very sick. And this was out in California. I wasn't from California. And I was so sick that like I had to see all kinds of specialists and stuff. So I had to go back to where my family was in New York to, to do that. It ended very badly, frankly. I mean, no, no real, I don't know how the co-founder feels about me today. I always meant the best for him. And you know, I'm sorry that I got sick and had to leave. But frankly, we were out of money anyway at that time. So, and he, from what I can tell, everything turned out well for him. I, what I feel really bad about, of course, is the investors. And you know, I still feel a lot of guilt to this day about the fact that it didn't work out for those investors. But that said, it turns out the business was just not really viable. Uh, it was too much of a manual process. And at that time, people were not willing to trust a startup to, to buy their car. And at the same time, there was a successful startup in this space, which is still around today, called TrueCar. And they had a much smarter business model. Instead of doing this reverse auction that, by the way, was supposed to take 48 hours, they would instantly get you in communication with the dealer at a locked-in price. So they had a much smarter business model. And they're the company. There were a few companies in this space at the time, and they're the company that ultimately succeeded. So long story short, bad business model, bad health problems, and also just just probably not enough money to really see it through to if we would have had to pivot or something, which we started to talk about at the time. I think it's really awesome. If only you'd had VC money. <laughs> we didn't have VC money, right? It was a friends and family round, right? I think what you accomplished is really awesome. Especially the fact that you guys sold 30 cars. That's uh, really impressive. People listening may or may not understand how hard it is to do what you did. uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and we did. So it wasn't just the two of us. We had like some interns. We we actually had a sales guy for like a month in there or something like that. And there was also a full-time other developer as well who also ended up being a salesperson. We all ended up being salespeople. And that was, of course, a terrible use of our time, right? So here you have people with graduate degrees who are spending, and not that it's below us or anything. Obviously, it wasn't below, below us because we were doing it, right? Um, it was that, okay, we could have been using that time productively, building the site, making new business arrangements, you know, doing all kinds of things to expand, to find new ways to pivot the business. But instead, we were spending all day on the phone, talking to dealers, talking to customers. And that is just not an effective use of our time. There's nothing scalable about being on the phone. Nothing scalable about being on the phone. So, so I learned a lot from that, and I never want to be in a super high-touch business again after that. I mean, obviously, I'm a professor now, so I'm in a very high-touch business. I spend all day just talking to people. But I mean, I never want to be in a startup again that's so high-touch. I think one of the interesting points, uh, and this was just kind of a, a completely random one, but one I'm like sort of filing away, was that... Um, acquisitions aren't real until there's money in the bank. So I forget who said this, but he said... It was Paul Graham. I took down the same note. Yeah. At the point where people say, we want to buy you, the chances of it falling through are like 80 or 90%. So you can't let yourself believe. If someone wants to make you an offer, fine, but don't change your plans based on that. Just keep going. So I thought that was a really interesting point. Like, I, Who knows if that statistic is remotely right, but I think it's, it's, I'm sure, quite accurate that a lot of people say, we want to buy you and that leads nowhere. They talked about dog fooding, so just making sure you're, you're using your software yourself so you really understand what's going on. I do think that's really important. Improving speed of solving problems. I thought this was a really good one. So assume that whatever you are doing is going to go wrong. How can you make it so that it will go faster when it does go wrong? Because it will. For example, the rebuild script takes 24 hours, but that's not a big deal because it's part of the system that isn't live yet. But when it is live and it takes 24 hours to redo, that's a big deal. So fix it. Make it work in two hours or whatever. This is one that I actually took to heart and started to you know work, work on with my team, which is just that like, hey, we're, we're having bugs. Like, what can we do to make our ability to solve those bugs be faster than it was before? What like monitoring can we put in so that we know about it before someone else reports it? Those kinds of things. Another one was VCs never say no. I found VCs to be significantly politer than the folks I worked with. The worst they did was not call me back. I'd never hear from them again. Brad Feld does a nice blog talking about how the VC process works. He says they never call you back to say no. They don't want to close the door in case they want to open it again, but they don't want to actually give you a response. Very few VCs actually said, sorry, we're not interested. I thought that was an interesting point. And I sort of saw a Twitter thing where I, I posted about it as well, that like it's basically a free option that VCs have that like maybe you'll do something where it's really interesting. So if they say no, then you're going to turn them off. But if you know you succeed after you know having pitched them, they can always come in and say, oh yeah, we finally did our diligence and you know things look great. They should say no at this time. <laughs> I 
feel like in the long run, founders would appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I, like, I, I 100% <laughs> agree that just like, it, I don't think that if I had founded a company and I had whatever pitched a VC and he had ignored me and then came back, you know, six months later after we were succeeding and said he still wanted to invest, I don't think I would take him up on that. If he had like actually been, I don't know, advising and participating and introducing me to other people and whatever, you know, taking an interest beyond just like not directly saying no, then, you know, maybe there would be some chance. I've had um, VCs tell me no before. I mean, and quite established ones, albeit ones on the East Coast. Yeah, they give me a no. I appreciate it. That's a good point. Maybe it is a West Coast versus East Coast thing. That's something we didn't really talk about, but there is a lot of East Coast founders and whatnot in here. There was a lot more from Cambridge than anything I would have expected. And I guess that's just where they were at the time. And then, well, Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston originally were, not originally, originally, but um, that's kind of where they met and they founded, where he founded Viaway, but they moved to the ballot. Yeah. Another one was the difference in almost any position between someone who does a good job and someone who does a great job might be 20% more in salary, but it's 100 or 200% more in throughput. So just sort of like, don't, worry too much about negotiating down people on salaries. If you think someone's like really the best for it, they're probably, you know, one or two X better than the the person you might be able to get for that like 20% off. Golden handcuffs, baby. And then when looking for money, you wanted to generate two things when you're looking for money. One is a sense of exclusivity saying, this is a very special kind of deal and not everybody is going to get into it. And secondly, a sense of urgency. So you can get people to make a decision. I think those are kind of obvious, but just, you know, nice little succinct way of thinking about if you are going after VCs. Again, I think you're right. Most of what we heard about VC in this was how terrible it is. So I think my takeaway here was if I can scale something without the need for VC, then I absolutely should. I think the only reason I would want to take VC is because I think there is a need to rapidly spend on advertising or some kind of technology or something that is really expensive and that that has to happen before we're going to be able to do the self-financing on that. And if, if you don't, then some other team is going to be able to, to beat you just with that. Because we didn't really go into this, but there was the whole like Yahoo, Lycos, Excite, Wars. And it seemed like a lot of that was just like VC money that ended up buying. I, for, I actually forget who it was. I think it was Excite that like just paid Netscape, Netscape. like $3 million for, for their, yeah. uh, you know, hot link for search. And like that, that was the key to their success was just that they, they happened to get VC money in and then they blew it all on uh, getting all of Netscape's traffic. But yeah, uh, honestly, I, I really enjoyed this. This was by far the longest book we've read. I think it was like on my iPhone, at least it said like 700 pages. Um, I'm not sure what the, the physical book was, but... Um, it's 450 in print. No, it's a, it's a really long book. Uh, and the, I will say A-Press, who's my former publisher, they published one of my books, did a terrible job on the printing. Like the actual text on the inside is grainy on the printed version and unclear. I think it's a great book. It's a... I think it's one of the best books you could read prior to founding a company. I don't think it's a great book for a book club. I find it really difficult to discuss the book because there isn't a logical sequence as you go from the beginning of the book to the end of the book that like your brain and memory can hang on. It's just they're two. I mean, yeah, some of the interviews are linked together, but by and large, they're separate. So it makes it really hard to discuss. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's almost too much here to really discuss So who would you recommend this book to? Who should read this book? Absolutely people who are thinking about founding a technology company. But if I may, uh, people need to understand that you can found a business. Well, I I guess the book does get into this a little bit, but you don't have to take venture capital. There are multiple companies in this book that didn't and which managed to do just fine. And people need to understand that there are many paths to becoming a millionaire and they don't always consist of over hiring and, you know, spending boatloads of money. Uh, That's not something that I feel is very well explained generally in the startup space. And I think that this book touches upon it a little bit, but to circle back, yeah, it's fantastic for people who want to found a company, particularly if that company is in the software space. Yep. And I'm going to agree with that. This is a must read for people who want to found a software startup. But I also think people are just interested in the history of software, especially during the dot-com boom, but also during the early personal computer revolution can get a bit out of this book. And I'll just, from my opinion, you don't need to read every interview. Uh, There's a lot of these interviews that if the company or the product doesn't really interest you that much, you can skip it and still get a lot out of the book. 
If someone hasn't founded a company though, if I were their mentor, I'd be like, you read every story. Hmm. Okay. I think I think it's important. It's especially important. Like, you know, we all have this temptation to be like, oh, that guy failed. Never heard of that one. Skip. But that's not the right way to think about it. Well, and I don't think any of them are really complete failures. I think pretty much everyone in here had some kind of an exit or like some maybe they failed with one startup and then they succeeded with something else down the line. So yeah, definitely agree. Anyone who's interested in founding a company should read this. And to a point that you'd made earlier, Kopec, I think it's honestly like a pretty interesting like historical document. So mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. Li- yeah, literally, if you wanted to write a book about, you know, the dot-com boom and bust or something like that, I thought there were a lot of great anecdotes here that I, frankly, I wonder if this, if this is highly cited and things like that. I, I kind of doubt it because I'd never heard of it, but it's really just a phenomenal insight into the minds of a bunch of founders in that sort of 2005 to 2008 range. Okay, so it's a great book, great pick by me. So everyone should remember that. <laughs> that when I pick future ones, uh, although maybe it was a little hard to talk about. It so still our sucks pick, for the book club, yeah, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, I, our pick for next month is actually David Short's pick. So David, do you want to tell us a little bit about the new Bob Iger book, The Ride of a Lifetime? Yeah. So our next book is going to be Bob Iger's. I guess it's not really a memoir. He says it's lessons learned from 15 years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And so I just read the first couple chapters and I've really enjoyed it so far. He's been doing a bunch of podcasts and stuff like that as well. So people may have, may have heard about it separately, but it is essentially just Bob Iger's things that he learned from being the CEO of Disney and his sort of history in business. And the preface alone was fascinating. It goes through just like one week in his life when the Disney Shanghai was opening and simultaneously the... Orlando shootings took place, uh, which were apparently actually intended to be at Disney World, but he just couldn't get in because of the security. And so then he went to the uh, that night Pulse nightclub instead. So anyway, you know, fascinating and just like very moving. I think I actually like cried reading the uh, the the first you know preface of the book. So I'm excited to to get further into it. Great. I'm looking forward to that. Um, according to Amazon, a sponsored product related to that item is The Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. So maybe a future book club selection. Uh, do either of you have anything you want to plug this month? No, just follow me on Twitter. And if you got this far on the podcast, send me an obscene message. How can they reach you on Twitter? What's your username? At uh, Molson, M-O-L-S-O-N, uh, underscore heart. What about you, David? Yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter as well, at David G. Short. And I'm on Twitter at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. It was great having you with us this month. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. That really helps us. And don't forget to click subscribe because we'd love to see you again next month. 